Greetings everyone and welcome on behalf of the Lumen Christi Institute. My name is Peter Tierney and I help direct science and religion programming at the Institute. At Lumen Christi, we are committed to trying to bring the Catholic intellectual tradition into broader dialogue across disciplines and religious traditions. It is thus exciting to be partnering with the International Academy for Bioethical Inquiry to be hosting events that bring an integral understanding of the person to bioethics and related discussions. Now, in 2000, atmospheric chemist Paul Kretzen and limnologist Eugene Stormer argued that our human impact on the globe has been so pervasive and significant that it merited the designation of a new geological epoch. Humans had left the Holocene and were now in what they dubbed the Anthropocene. Since then, the term has migrated across disciplines and from scientific journals into the popular media. Now, today's panel will help us better understand this term how it captures challenges to our ethics, our understanding of human action and human health, and how our religious traditions are challenged and also can creatively respond. Now, moderating today's discussion and introducing our speakers is Dr. Jeff Bishop. Dr. Bishop is the Tenet Endowed Chair in Healthcare Ethics, Professor of Philosophy, and Professor of Theology at St. Louis University. He holds an MD from the University of Texas and a PhD in Philosophy from the University of Dallas. Jeff is also the founder and lead organizer of the International Academy for Bioethical Inquiry. Now with that, I'll invite Dr. Bishop to turn on his video and audio. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for uh, uh, working with us on this. Uh, a few, uh, few months ago, we were going to have our, uh, a meeting of the International Academy for Bioethical Inquiry in Chicago at the Lumen Christi Institute. And unfortunately, COVID got in the way of that. And so we're we decided to partner with Lumen Christi to put on these, these conversations. Let me say a little bit about the International Academy for Bioethical Inquiry. It, it's a group of, of, of scholars who, who really got tired of the kind of technocratic approach to bioethics, which often ends up just being the apologist for whatever medicine decides it wants to do, or, um, um, or you know, the, the apologist for what the NIH decides is, is it wants to do. Um, and we we also know that the history of bioethics is a history that is rich with both theological and, and philosophical uh, conversations, uh, including thinkers like Alistair McIntyre, who at one point spoke uh, uh, vociferously into the world of bioethics, as did people like Hans Jonas. And in a way, we're trying to recapture that. And that's the purpose of today's conversation is to, to broaden the horizons of bioethics and to, uh, to uh, try to, to get voices that are right beside bioethics to kind of speak into bioethics and to, and to help us to think a little bit more clearly uh, about where we are uh, philosophically, theologically, intellectually, uh, uh, more broadly. Um, and so to that end, uh, we're putting on this conversation, integral bioethics in the Anthropocene. And uh, so I'll be moderating a conversation. We have three uh, dis dis distinguished panelists who will be speaking with us. I'll ask a series of questions to them. And at the end, we'll have some time for you to ask questions as well. Um, so thanks for joining us and, and we'll go ahead and, and, and move on. Uh, so uh, our first panelist is Benjamin DeFoy. Uh, ben is a, the Bampoo, Bampoo Chair in Sustainability, and he's Professor of Atmospheric Science uh, in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences here at St. Louis University. His research focuses on uh, computer simulation of air pollution 
after uh, getting his PhD in engineering from Cambridge University, he worked uh, with Dr. Mario Molina at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology on a project to improve air quality in Mexico City. Uh, he now researches air pollution in places ranging from St. Louis, East St. Louis to, uh, to Tibet. And he teaches uh, courses in climate change here at St. Louis University. Willis Jenkins, uh, another of our panelists, lives in the Ravana River watershed where he works at the University of Virginia as professor of religious, religion, ethics, and uh, the environment. And uh, he was also bemoaning the fact that he's also the department chair, which he mainly means he does email now. Um, he is the author of two award-winning books, however, uh, Ecology of Grace, which won a Templeton Award for Theological uh, Promise, and The Future of Ethics, which won the American Academy of Religion Award uh, for Excellence as well. Our third panelist is Simone Kotba. Uh, she was research fellow most recently at Emmanuel College Cambridge and has recently been appointed to a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Oslo in the Faculty of Theology, uh, where she works on the Transdisciplinary Environmental Humanities Project, which is called The Ambivalence of Nordic Nature, Gift, Guilt, Grace. Simone is the author of Effort and Grace on the Spiritual Exercise of Philosophy, which just came out this year. And she has uh, published widely on French spiritualism, uh, ecological thinking and uh, the philosophy of attention, um, especially in the work of Simone Bay. Uh, with Alice Tarbach, she is currently completing a book addressing uh, attention to spiritual technology for the transformation of the earth. And it's, I think the project is called Spellbound for a Damaged Planet, uh, Magic and Ecology. So I invite all of you to turn on your microphones now and your cameras. There's Simone. Okay, great. So welcome everyone and thanks for joining us today. And Ben, I'm going to start with you to, uh, to kind of get a sense of what the Anthropocene is. What do we mean by that? And, and what is the data supporting the claims uh, behind the call of the Anthropocene? Uh, what's captured behind the concept? Great. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. And thank you to the Lumen Christie Institute for this opportunity to take part in the panel. Thank you for everybody zooming in. Uh, I want to answer, take, take a little bit of a, an angle on, on this question. Uh, the Anthropocene was more recently suggested by Paul Crutzen, like uh, Peter mentioned at the beginning, who received the Nobel Prize in chemistry. Um, but I want to talk about the scientist that he shared the prize with, which is, uh, who is Mario Molina. And unfortunately, Mario Molina passed away uh, just last week. So I urge you to dig behind the news headlines and to read about his, his wonderful life. Uh, so I had the, the great pleasure of working for Mario Molina at MIT on the Mexico City project. And I think um, he was really a model scientist for this fractious age, speaking to do the best science possible, uh, making it relevant to problems facing humanity and having the courage to take the results from the lab to the powers that be. So I, I think uh, that song attributed to St. Francis, make me a channel of your peace. And uh, the great line in the, in the middle there that I may seek not so much to be understood as to understand. And I think uh, Mario was very fond of asking naive questions and, and running through thought experiments to, to think things through. So the, the story begins, however, before Mario with someone who deserves to be remembered 
as the arch villain of the 20th century, and, and you may not even know who he is, uh, Thomas Midgley. His inventions led to not one, but two global environmental catastrophes, tetral ethyl lead and chlorofluorocarbon, listed on a Times um, list of 50 worst inventions ever, and he is responsible for two of them. Um, so, so before we move from that, let, let me, uh, um, yeah. So if you were born before 1990, and Thomas Midgley cost you at a minimum several IQ points from all the lead in, in your brain, and as for CFCs, there were none in the earth before him, um, and they seemed totally safe at first. So then we enter James Lovelock, who would later propose the Gaia hypothesis. Lovelock thought, this is great. We have a natural experiment with these CFCs that have never been in the environment before. We're releasing them. So I could measure them and I could track them uh, all around the world. Um, so let me ask you, how many fine grains of sand do you, do you think would fit around the equator? You know, if this were class, you would all uh, flood the chat with your estimates and we could, we could talk about them. Um, we won't do that here. It, it turns out it's about a trillion fine grains of sand around the equator. James Lovelock built an instrument so that if you had a trillion air molecules and only one of them was a CFC molecule, then he could detect it. And so by measuring these tiny amounts of CFC, CFCs, he was able to, to track the spread of pollution in the atmosphere and into the oceans. Um, so at this point then now we come to the, the main hero, Mario Molina and Sherry Rowland, who thought about this and they asked a naive question. If uh, nothing happens to CFCs in the environment, then what does happen to them? Something must happen to them. And what they found in the lab is that even tiny amounts in the atmosphere would lead to destruction of the ozone layer in the stratosphere. And seeing the importance of their results, they put their career on the line really to call for a ban on CFCs. And this led to one of the most effective environmental treaties ever, the Montreal Protocol of 1987. So it's outstanding science, outstanding courage to, to do something for the benefit of, of people. So there's many ways of illustrating the Anthropocene. Um, you could you know, spend all day with graphs. This story highlights just one story out of many. Uh, we've reached a point where Everywhere you look on Earth, you'll find the effects of humans. And often that effect is damaging to life. So sometimes it's like tetraethyl lead. People knew lead was a powerful neurotoxin. They knew this was dangerous and they turned the other way. Sometimes it's like CFCs. It's seemingly miraculous compound that was later found to be damaging to parts of the Earth we maybe didn't even know existed, even though we depend on them entirely for our survival. So, so either way, um, that's the Anthropocene for you. We, if you. we as humans now have the power to mess things up on Earth for every living being. And as Mario Moline and Sherry Rowland realize, with great power comes great responsibility. Thanks for that uh, history lesson and science lesson there. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, part of it I hadn't heard before. So, uh, so Willis, uh, you've argued uh, that we are just given the complexity of, of, of this, that we're just sort of almost morally incompetent uh, in the face of human-caused climate change and other elements factoring into the Anthropocene. So can you lay that out a little bit and, and uh, uh, lay out the challenges to our ethical frameworks that we, we, we now are facing? Sure. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jeff, for moderating this. And thanks to Lumen Christie for this, um, for this panel. Um, 
So yeah, in um in a book, I talked about the incompetence of our our moral traditions for making sense of unprecedented problems, climate change as exemplary among them. Um, so just for example, uh, if you're if a fundamental part of your tradition is neighbor love, it's kind of a challenge to think about what it means to love neighbors through shared relations of a, a climate crisis that extends across generations and involves indirect aggregate causes. Um, non-linear vulnerabilities. That's just, it's different from ordinary interpersonal interactions in a community or even a shared society. Um, and so that's a real challenge to our traditions. And so then to our interpretive ability to recognize something like climate change as a problem. Um, I can say more about that, um, but I think I wanna, I, I wanna quickly move to say is there's a real moral hazard to that kind of observation. And I wish I had, I wish I had said that more in the book, especially in a North Atlantic context. You know, it's as if, well, responsibility is just too complicated. It's too hard to think. Um, and, um, you know, there's two kinds of replies to that that I briefly wanna mention. You know, one is, uh, it's one that Henry Hsu, the philosopher of human rights um, uh, um, says in many contexts, which is basically, look, we have the concepts, we just don't wanna apply them. You know, it's just willful irresponsibility of non-accountable power. And um, uh, I think he's largely right, not entirely right. I still think justice and rights, there's real challenges to those ideas, those concepts, but that's an important thing to remember. And secondly, um, the research that has come out just in the last few years about the intentional obstruction of political processes for creating accountability and of cultural processes through which moral communities would develop those competencies has become evident. Um, so for example, evangelical Christians in the North Atlantic working to expand neighbor love through climate relations have been met by fossil fuel funded resistance specifically aimed at their capacity inside their community, which is, you know, that's cultural jamming at a, at a deep level. It's been really effective. And I think we haven't really realized it for the past few, until the past few years, uh, the extent to which this has been going on. And so now it's, I would, I would hold to the point of incompetence, but I would say there's certainly an element of planned incompetence, right? That there's this incompetence that is created and sustained by a, um, um, a kind of moral corruption. And that makes yes. it all the more difficult to, cha to challenge this big problem, right? To, to step into this big problem. Yeah. So, so there. there's moral incompetence in the, in the sense of we don't, have, uh, uh, we don't have the resources to intellectually engage it. But then there's, there's people uh, and forces, corporations, whatever it might be, pushing in the other direction such that uh, we, don't, we may not, not only not have the willpower to address it, but in fact, they are... Uh, giving all kinds of incentives uh, in order to keep us from imagining an alternative. Is that what, is that what you're saying? Yeah, climate change is hard enough on its own without, um, without um, there being political actors that are attempting to undermine our capacities to build political and moral responsibility. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so we've got this idea that, that we've, we've, we're, we're participating, we've caused the Anthropocene, we've, we've changed the, the way that the, the, the the entire uh, earth is is capable of behaving. Um, and I'd, I'd like to hear Simone now think about, you know, well, what does this do on our on ourselves? How does this come back to us, not just in terms of our biological health, but in, in our conceptions of our, our understanding of what it is to be human? Even? This is a really good question. Thank you. Um, I think 
I think on the one, so there are two, there are two things that the Anthropocene impacts about our understanding of the human. On the one hand, the term itself draws attention obviously to the human. This is in, in the name Anthropos. And it even aggrandizes it. So this is one of the negative criticisms of the term that the Anthropocene holds up, even as it kind of um, uh, points to the human as a culprit, it also promises a false promise of human-made techno fixes as possible solutions to the planetary crisis. Especially, of course, the false promises of particular Western ideals of what it is to be human, what human progress and achievement might look like. So there is this kind of glorification of um, geoengineering and human-made solutions as possible solutions. On the other hand, though, um, the epoch of time to which the Anthropocene refers has, of course, drawn attention away from those same ideals. So what I mean is the time in which we've been living for the last sort of 50 or 60 years has been a time in which we have had attention drawn away from these Western ideals of what it means to be human and to make progress. Lots of balloons and imaginations of human progress have been punctured. So we've turned our attention towards not only the vibrancy of animals and plants and non-human things, but to visions of interconnectedness and entangled life that one finds, for instance, in non-Western alternative ontologies, so-called, such as magic and animism, as well as in the pre-modern Christian mystical theology of figures like St. Francis and Hildegard of Bingen, there is this upsurging of, of a mystical theology that sees the entanglement of human and non-human and sort of de-centers essentially the human. So the thinking that's um, given rise to the term, so given rise to the term the Anthropocene was shaped by environmental philosophy, some of it pioneered by Norwegian philosopher Arne Ness, who um, was here at uh, Oslo University, and he argued that we are not the authors of our existence, that we depend on others and so should begin to treat the non-human as not just other, but more than human. And I suspect this is why a certain kind of spiritual realism is having such an important moment in this epoch that's now called the Anthropocene with both theologians and non-theologians drawing on the language and more importantly, the, the cultures surrounding and that have given rise to animism. It's a moment of re-sacralization, sort of urgent, but also of decolonization. So the realization that human beings are not self-sufficient and that non-humans are not below or inferior to us is a realization brought on today by ecological thinking. And this is structurally homologous to the realization of dependency that in the past was generated by the experience of God in Christian mysticism. And that continues to be generated by the experience of the world, the environment surround in so many so-called traditional societies. So um, to answer uh, your question, I think the way the, the Anthropocene has impacted our understanding of the human is simply by reminding us that the human is not, and indeed never could be merely human. So. Um, and this is a realization that's not solely ontic, although it's deeply entrenched in the ontic, but it's also ontological. So this shows how hazardous it is to conduct environmental thought or activism without a view to metaphysics, to the more than human. Uh, that's, that's very interesting. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that 
this is this poses a question for ethics in general, and I think it's partly what Willis was getting to because ethics, ethics. Well, I'll just use bioethics as the example. Bioethics, you can draw a line from essentially kind of the rise of Renaissance humanism up through the Enlightenment project, where certain humanisms come to the forefront. Even science itself is kind of born is born out of this sort of humanist thrust, um, and so so I guess the you know, the, the question to, for us to think about is, well, how, how do we humans think non-humanly? How do we, how do we uh, begin to, to, to get outside of our own heads, so to speak, our own imaginaries uh, in order to kind of uh, actually reestablish ourselves as, as important, but not, not, uh, not uh, important to the whole, uh, but not the masters and commanders of the whole. I mean, Willis, what do you, how, how do you think about that as a religious ethicist? <laughs> that's a, it's a great, and that's a great question that I so appreciate because it gets right to the difficulty of um, the religious inheritances that I work with, right? So I'm a scholar um, in Christian theology, Christian ethics, that's my training. Um, and I'll, just like Simone said so well, you see so many uh, scholars thinking about thinking from this inheritance, looking for ways to connect with non-modern cosmologies. And that might be pre-modern Christian cosmologies, that might be new forms of listening with indigenous cosmopolitics, that might be these kinds of um, practices that take us beyond the modern human imagination that think about reciprocity and responsibility with um, non-human persons. Uh, all those, I mean, just a wide intellectual interest in that. Uh, and I would say, um, so let me just say you have named what I take to be a significant intellectual challenge in, in my own career and where and the way in which I've begun to work on it is in ways that would have been quite surprising to me earlier in my career. <laughs> um, so I am, I'm outside of archives and working with scientists and artists uh, thinking together about environmental change in, um, in what we call humanities labs, uh, looking for ways to imagine um, intensified environmental change in landscapes that are um, that have all kinds of more than human actors in them with questions that can come back to you know those basic things that Simone just raised like how do we think about um, sort of who we are as humans uh, within a broader cosmos so let me just to make me real specific um, which let me just give you one example and then I'll, I'll, I'll pause I work with um, scientists on Virginia's Eastern Shore, where we have a long-term ecological research project that's funded by the NSF to, to focus on coastal change. Um, and so the scientists, they produce many white papers that not many people listen to, even though there's really dramatic coastal change happening there. Um, the fastest sea level rise um, in, in the world, and uh, or it's three times faster than the global average. So I work with a musician to um, sonify data sets so you can hear that he can hear the data and then we create performances from it. Um, and then it, um, that just opens up for people whole other registers of affective response to, um, to disciplined study of what's happening in environmental change. And then, you know, I, I think the wager is that opens new possibilities of cultural response to it as well. Um, so anyway, that is the, that's the line of thinking that I've been going to. And, I, and I, I go on at some length there, Jeff, just because just to underscore how significant a challenge I think you have just named. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's the, the, the modern world is a product of, of, of the various humanisms that have grown up uh, in yep. the way that they did, right? 
uh, and we've we've made the world thus, um, uh, and, and where everything kind of revolves around us, but we're no we're no longer in control of it. I think, um, and so so it, it, I guess the question is, well, you know, we all have to start figuring out ways to, you know, to think the non-human, but we're still human. We're still stuck in in in, in our capacities and with our tools, and and so I guess you know I I, I would. I'd like to hear all of you think a lot about this, but specifically Ben, as a scientist, I mean, how, how does one climb outside of this, the, the scientific mindset, which is to some extent dependent upon the rise of philosophical humanism in, uh, in the West, so to speak. So can, can we, what does that look like? Climb outside of the scientific mindset? <laughs> well, I mean, we, we need the science, there's no doubt. But there's got to be some way then to, to, to that sort of pulls us back in, not just, not just intellectually, but pulls mm -hmm. us back in as the kinds of animals that we are. Right. And I liked what Willis was saying about making this, um, you know, the, like the changes on the coast, making it visible to people. I think a lot about a lot of science is about seeing things, seeing, you know, the just seeing things that present themselves to us senses directly and kind of making sense of them but then also devising ever better instruments to see ever more things that are invisible to the eyes. And, and in a sense, there's a parallel there, I think also with religion that it, you know, seeing, there's one thing just seeing like a, you know, some monument there and another to see with the eyes of the imagination to see what does it mean? How does it come together? So that would be my, um, I guess, kind of answer to that and, and how ecological science is, it's interesting. It's quite different from, from bench science or lab science. Some of the pushback has come from physicists who are used to, to very precise, very controlled environments. When you're an atmospheric scientist, the lab is the atmosphere. You, you don't control it. You have to go out, you make measurements, and you hope that on, on, when you've planned your field campaign, you get good results. And what will happen is nature will send you a curveball and you'll have an unexpected event happen. Um, so it, it shows you, you know, how everything is connected and how really you can't just control how you're at the mercy of, of things like that. And that, that's both kind of exciting and challenging at the same time. Yeah, I guess in some ways, the sort of quintessential way we think about science is this outside observer who controls everything and kind of keeps it steady. But there are older forms of science that maybe realize that we are entangled, that, that, that actually the earth and atmospheric science folks are having to actually realize that, that there, there aren't in controlled experiments and that there are things that are out of control. Um, um, so I wonder, I wonder um, you, know, you, know, uh, you know, I know Simone has done some work uh, historically. Are there historical figures that we can turn to that, uh, that might kind of, I mean, I, I'm thinking maybe Nicholas of Cusa or some, uh, some of the patristic thinkers who had a different, you know, a much broader way of, of, of understanding humanity as, as entangled. Um, can you speak to some of that maybe? Yeah, that's a lovely question. Um, I think that, uh, so the work that I've been doing myself recently has been looking at, on the, uh, as, as Willis was saying, on the one hand, pre-modern Western thinkers who had a more sort of entangled view of the world, the Christian mystical tradition, I've been particularly interested in the spiritual exercise tradition because there you get, so we think we're talking about from the patristic period onwards into the early modern period and also carries on into the 18th century and so on. But um, thinkers like Johannes Climacus, patristic period, um, 
who write spiritual manuals for how to basically you know, draw, draw close to God. And one of the recurring features in this literature is the um, comparison made between the person who prays and a plant or a non-human um, animal. I've been really fascinated by this because I think that one of the good, big challenges in thinking non-humanly is that um, we don't have concrete sort of exercises for doing this, right? Um, and so there's a, you can, I mean, you can use kind of poetic imagination to get you there, but that only takes you so far. And there's something within about integrating that into your life constructively and actually changing the way you see things, which is what, again, spiritual exercises has this interesting parallel um, with science in, is that it's supposed to cultivate a different way of looking at the world. And you do that through habit, through looking at it repeatedly in a way that eventually becomes second nature. And in the spiritual exercise tradition, um, the way you cultivate uh, perceptiveness to God and the spiritual non-human is by uh, cultivating perceptiveness to the creaturely non-human. Um, and this in turn transforms your perception so that you see yourself as yourself, not merely human, but entangled. And so you can then draw on as a sort of contemporary uh, reader, you can then uh, go to the new materialists and see the same kind of ideas at work in someone like Jane Bennett's work on vibrant matter, where she talks about how, you know, if you think about your body, it really isn't human. It's just lots of different non-human bits and pieces working together, co-laboring, and then to create this sort of thing, which is and is not human. And I think the same thing is there in the spiritual exercise tradition. And it also gives you actual exercises, like things to do, to transform your perception in this way. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that we can look at uh, from sort of resourcing our tradition. And then we can see how that kind of thinking is, of course, as I was mentioning before, and Willis also talked about that, it's, it's paralleled and developed differently in lots of pre-modern or sort of what's sometimes called like a-modern ontologies where it's still practiced. So there it's not even a question of reviving some sort of you know, pre-modern tradition, which might feel quite kind of difficult to do, but you can just go there and talk to people who live this way today. So that's why I'm interested in magic um, and animism as uh, ontologies that uh, really sort of demonstrate criticism today or critical thinking in the Anthropocene. Um, and then we can also look at philosophers who've been attracted to this way of thinking. I mean, Jeff, you mentioned Bergson, um, as somebody you've been interested in. And you know, uh, he wasn't thinking uh, directly with um, these uh, pre-modern ontologies in the way that uh, we think of them as, as mystical, but he was intuiting similar ideas by his study of the Greek philosophers, especially. Uh, so yeah, there, there are lots of, it, it, there's like a sort of, when you start seeing this, you see that there's a kind of alternative um, genealogy of, of kind of ontology that has been pursuing this line and tried to sort of make sense of it in relation to all sorts of um, uh, mindsets that make it very difficult. So, yeah. No, that's that's, that's uh, intriguing. I, I especially like your your idea of the transformation of perception um, and, and how we can get outside of the scientific way of trying to think of ourselves as removing ourselves from it in order to observe it as an outside observer. And I'd, I'd like to hear uh, Willis and, and, and Ben both think on this in terms of how, 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 how might we transform religious communities on the one hand to, to be, uh, to, to, to transform perception or how do we transform scientists too, to, to begin to 
and, and, not, and not just scientists, but scientifically, scientifically literate culture to, uh, to perceive the world differently uh, in these sort of non-human ways, so to speak. Uh, Willis or, or Ben, whoever wants to go first, yeah. Well, okay. I'll take a crack at that. You you ask big questions, Jeff. Oh, sorry. So <laughs> those are those, those are really those those are those are great those are great points. Um, so let me say um, the to the question like how do we transform um, religious practices or religious communities? So just obviously and it makes a lot of difference on who the we is. And and so when I think when I was th hearing Simone talk, um, my mind was drawn to. Um, uh, Pope Francis's let out the C encyclical. Um, in, I, I'm not Catholic, so I don't identify right in the we of that. But I was really, I was, um, you know, one of the things I was really struck by as as an observer was how his contemplative account of dominion restructures um, how dominion figures in establishing human dignity, a sense of humanity, human personhood, and begins to key it to something that Simone just identified, that um, perception of the non-human world as being a key, um, a key practice and form through which one becomes properly human you know that's a you know that's a real possibility in christian traditions um and it's and it's expressed maybe not to its fullness but it's you know that direction is expressed in in Laudato si. um and i think it's extraordinary and so i would just say um um I'm interested in that. So as a scholar, I'm interested in where that's happening. And I'm looking for all those analogies that are happening in other kinds of communities and traditions where people are scholars, activists, whatever kind of agent are, are looking for these possibilities that, that many people in many different contexts now realize are ever more important that we, that um, there's something about modernist conceptions of the human that is um, bad for us, <laughs> bad for our world, bad for our health, bad for our personhood, um, and getting us into all kinds of um, just political and cultural dead ends. And we need to imagine our way out and find our way out. And I think you, there are these communities and agents finding their way out. And, um, and I think it's on us as, as scholars to, to find them, work with them, lift them up, um, push them, and so on. Okay. Uh, ben, have you, have you thought much about how we transform the, uh, the perceptive abilities of, of scientists, but, but specific, or more generally scientifically sophisticated culture? Mm -hmm. uh, makes me think of um, Richard Feynman, who said, you know, the scientific discovery is not Eureka, you know, um, Archimedes jumping out of his bathtub. The scientific discovery starts with, uh, that's funny, just kind of noticing something that doesn't quite fit. Um, and I think, you know, religion can kind of inform the kind of uh, the imagination of people. And a lot, there are a lot of Christian scientists out there and other religions too. Um, I think of the uh, the healing of the blind man at the pool on the seventh day and the, the pharisees are upset because it's the sabbath and i kind of sometimes feel like well you know jesus could maybe have waited until the next day and and everybody would have been happy and the sense that in a sense creation was not complete and so it's it's part of our job to continue that the, the significance of the sabbath there is that we are picking up where kind of god in a sense rested he, he hasn't done everything for us we are agents of creation and once we see um this blind man not as a, a cursed or a sinner or something who you know he just got what he what he he must have done something to to be you know to get this but instead to see him as somebody who can be cared for ministered to then you know all of a sudden we do make the blind to see um i think that's something you know we 
environmentalists can can sometimes be a little down on on progress, but uh, we're not opposed to progress. There's lots of amazing things um, that become possible once you see and, and you know. And that's why um, with um, Mario Molina and the ozone hole problem, there was a problem that we could not just see without instruments. But then once once it became clear this was a problem. We came together and we said, look, we can do something about this. We want to do something about this. And, and that's what happened. Yeah. Well, I think, I think for science, it's often the case that, that you, you go, you, you're right. It's sort of like, oh, what happened over there? I don't understand it. Um, and then it usually takes a while for people to come to see the problem differently. And then suddenly they see a lot of other things differently by virtue of seeing that, uh, that problem differently. And so I, I think that's in part what you know, our kind of recognition of human impact uh, and that now we're able to see it much more uh, required certain kinds of scientific habits, I think, of, of, of learning to see rightly, which of course is always a, a problematic thing. Um, so I, I wanna, you, we talked about this in terms of, I wanna end with a, another big question. Now we're gonna, I'm gonna end my formal questions. We still have uh, questions popping up from outside. We'll, we're gonna get to those as well. But um, I want to end with a kind of a big question, I guess, too. But we, we've talked about this in terms of um, philosophical ways of thinking. We've talked about it in terms of religious or theological ways or scientific ways of thinking. And there's a way in which um, there's, there's, there's almost, it's, it's a really difficult thing to think synthetically. Um, I, I think what, what COVID has pointed out to us is that we can think about we can think about COVID in so many different ways. We can think about it as primarily a problem of a virus, or we can think about it uh, as to how we uh, secure food sources, right? We could think about it in terms of international politics. We could think about it in terms of economics or technology even. Um, without technology, it couldn't spread around the globe the way it does. Um, and so, so there's, there seems to be no place in culture where we can kind of synthesize all of these different ways of seeing and different ways of knowing. Um, and and I'd, I'd like to hear you reflect on, on just the immensity of the problem uh, when we're all trying to get a, a, you know, the proverbial blind, blind, blind man gathering around the elephant sort of uh, a problem here. How do we think synthetically about the whole? And what can we do to begin to think synthetically about the whole? Anyone, Simone. Well, um, I was wondering if it might be helpful to think uh, quite sort of technically about this. Um, I think ecological thinking is often um, thought of as uh, the urgency to think about the, about nature, to sort of uh, talk about the natural world, right? And this often actually doesn't lead very far, right? Um, simply because we're talking about nature or suddenly deciding that we're going to have like a course on environmental ethics doesn't necessarily mean that we now become activists who do things and make things happen. I mean, Willis is smiling and I'm sure this is um, something recognizes. recognize it. So uh, that's why it might be useful to become technical because what does it mean to think ecologically? It doesn't mean thinking about nature, but thinking in a way that somehow changes, as Jeff was saying, our perception of the world. And 
uh, there I've been very inspired by actually what some scientists do when they transform their perception to become sensitive to the things that they want to see. As Ben was, was describing it so beautifully, you can see something, but then you can see it with the eyes of somebody who knows like how it was made or what its purpose is. And um, I've been very, uh, very struck by what Isabel Stengers, the historian of philosophy, sorry, the historian of science and philosopher of science has written about what she calls slow attention and what essentially uh, amounts to attentiveness as opposed to attention. So instead of sort of paying attention and bracketing out everything that's uninteresting, except this one thing, we try and be open and we slow down, be receptive to whatever may lurk. That's one of the sort of technical things that we can do, which it sort of doesn't, it doesn't mean, it, what's nice about that, it doesn't depend on it, thinking about something in specific, it's how we think. So how do we, I'd like to, that, that's a really uh, important point, I think, the, the slow attentiveness, the, the kind of purposeful, careful approach. Um, and there's a way that's kind of opposed to the technological mindset, which kind of sees speed, rapidity, interact, inter, in, inject, uh, 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 interject, you know, um, and it, it also kind of goes against uh, um, a lot of the, the supposed technological fixes. And there's a certain kind of urgency we feel about, about uh, the environmental uh, crises that are, are looming. So how, how do we cultivate a, a sense of urgent slowness, <laughs> urgent attentiveness, I guess? Uh, Willis, have you given any thought to that? I appreciate that. Um... And uh, um, I just want to commend Simone for being able to talk about slow attention while there's a toddler on her lap. That's pretty, it's pretty fantastic. That seems like the kind of capacity that we actually exactly need, um, which is the ability to like to think through the urgent thing right in front of you that's distracting. I mean, how many times have all of us heard um, people who are rightly quite concerned about climate breakdown, about mass extinction, saying, I don't have time to think about your complexity because we just have to focus on this thing. And that's the trick, right? Like you have to, you have to be able to respond. Um, we all have to be able to respond, but also to, to as you say, uh, ask those big questions, those synthetic questions. Um, I, if I can say, you know, let me just name a liability that I see in non-synthetic thinking um, that really plagues Anthropocene discourse. Um, when this, the, the way that humanity and humans becomes this obscuring context. So it's no longer particular societies or particular agents or particular ideas that are driving our problems and our breakdowns, um, but humans in general, which, uh, you know, the, uh, I like Jed, Jed Purdy, the legal thinker has described it as a kind of moral laundering that happens because, you know, in relation to the climate crisis, we're not talking about the hundred known top emitters, we're talking about humans. Mm -hmm. And we're no longer talking about the particular populations that are vulnerable to sea level rise, not the the black lives lost in New Orleans because of white supremacy structured vulnerability to flooding from hurricanes in a particular way and then incarcerated people in the city. We're not talking about that. We're talking about human vulnerabilities, right? And I, so I think there's a kind of, there's a drive toward an easy synthesis that's driven by urgency that wants to talk about humans and the planet that keeps us from seeing the more complex synthesis that we have to be able to see the way that injustice is, is, not only attendant within this crisis, but driving the ways that we're drawn to think poorly about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that when we talk about humanity, we have to we have to think four different things at once about that, even that concept. We we mentioned uh, uh, Ben. Did you want to say something? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And 
Yeah, because I, I think, you know, to, to bring back to Laudato Si in the encyclical, um, which can be disconcerting to people, especially theologians, you know, you're expecting a theological monograph in Latin and, and it's, it's much more in a conversational style. So I came with a prop. Um, you won't get the full experience because we're on Zoom, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, here's, uh, I, I stole this from my children, the, the juggling balls. And, and often we want, we want to just like lay these down and say, here's my things. These are the things I care about. And actually this is the one I care about more. So I'll put these away. When really what's needed is, is kind of a little bit of juggling, you know, if you do this, like this, and it falls apart. Juggling is actually really hard, um, especially sitting in front of Zoom. <laughs> uh, and I, I was thinking about that, that wonderful book here for people with young children, The Clown of God, um, because I think that's part of what we, the Pope is trying to do in, in Laudato Si, is, is keeping these different factors together, that there's kind of this personal factor of what is it that I can do, the more societal factor, okay, it's, it's not enough for me to use a tote bag. We got to, as a society, do things, organize things. I can give a loaf of bread or I can work to a society where people have enough to eat, um, the, these two things. But also the third thing, what are our hopes and our dreams? What is our vision? Which I think Simone has been sort of talking about. What am I attentive to? Um, and it's interesting in Laudato Si, there's two suggestions I think sometimes people might kind of dismiss as a little trite, you know, one of the things he says to, com to combat climate change, you know, we, we've, he talks about biodiversity loss, all these heavy subjects, and then he says, you know, remember to say grace before dinner. Huh. And like, well, how is that going to change anything? And actually, maybe, maybe it will, maybe it will change the way we think about the gifts we receive. And, and then after that, he says, you know, observe the Sabbath. The, the, how does that change the way we think, even of our careers or our consumerism or, or, or all these things? So it, it's a juggling act of these three things. And I think sometimes we get into trouble when we argue with each other and say, actually, no, it, it's just this one factor. Or it's this one. Or it's, no, it's, we, we just got to, here's the, the COVID-19 project for everybody. Make yourself some juggling balls and, uh, and practice. Yeah, yeah. Or say grace. So, uh, well, let, let, I mean, Laudato, I mean, you, you brought Laudato C in, and as you were talking, it made me think, well, you know, what, uh, and, and saying grace, I mean, what is that? It's giving thanks, and it also kind of makes you pause to think from whence came this food, right? Uh, and uh, so it, it, it could give you pause to, to begin to think about your, your interconnectedness, but I guess what, one of the things that pops in my head, for, uh, for this will be something for all of you to chime in on, is what what was what does it do to our thinking to imagine reality as created, as opposed to just something that happened, right? Um, that that does it does it change our perception? Does it does it uh, what 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 does it change? And is it important to have that dimension of of thinking of it as as gift as not our own? What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think if I can answer just briefly, I think it certainly does make a difference, but it makes a difference in different ways, depending on how creation itself is imagined. Um, obviously, so, so here's, I think, a place that theology broadly construed really matters uh, for how non-human relations between human and non-human are imagined. You know, if you think of, if you think of creation as um, uh, by the metaphor 
of fiat or 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 instrumental obedience, you, you know, you may end up with something that that works kind of well with a modern instrumentalism. If you imagine creation as something, um, I don't know, more relational or emergent or involving mutual responsibilities or delight or any of those kinds of features, is it's going to light up a different kind of moral universe. And so I would just underscore that, that that's a that's a that's a really fertile place for. Um, inquiry and conversation in all different kinds of theological communities. Yeah, so creation, the idea of creation itself is already embedded in certain uh, understandings that may or may not have uh, be, be instrumental and still produce the kind of problems that we have. So that's a very good point, yeah. Uh, anyone else wanna chime in on that? Well, I think from the Psalm, you know, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And I think uh, for, for you know, religious people, certainly there's this kind of awesomeness of the world, the things that we see. Um, you know, at the moment we've, we're very fortunate, you can see Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars in, in your evening walk. So do this tonight. And, uh, and if you have binoculars, you can see the Galilean moons on, on Jupiter. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a scientific curiosity on the one hand, and on the other hand, it kind of reminds you of the immensity of the world. Um, and how fortunate we are on Earth that, you know, that there's not many planets like us that keep us alive. So I, I think it does, thinking of, of creation, I think, helps us be more sensitive to those things. And, and maybe a little bit with the, the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are they that mourn. I think this, there can be a lot, we want a lot of different political points of view. We want diversity of opinion. We want... But I think as a Christian, you do at some point have to, to be mournful, even if we disagree on the solutions, to be attentive to things, you know, biodiversity loss is something to be mournful about. And at the same time, there's a promise, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be consoled. So it's, it's not just one side, it's, it's together. Uh, Simone, do you want to chime in on this, or should we go to the audience's questions? I mean, I only had one thing to say, which is that... Um... The, the perception that the world is, that you're not the author of your own existence, so that there is a givenness. I mean, that's not, um, I, th I think the, the real question is, do, does, do you have to be religious in order to, to perceive that? And I don't think you have to be, or rather in that case, religiousness is something so inextricable from being human that there's no point in separating them. Maybe that's the more, the sort of the deeper conversation. Um, because, and, and that comes back to the sort of the reason why there's so much religious talk really um, implicit in environmental discourses because the kind of the affect that we're talking about is one that just converges with religious experience at the deepest level, um, I think, so yeah. Well, I, we've got questions and I'm gonna uh, turn to one that is specifically bioethical at this point, uh, simply because it kind of kind of goes right at the heart of some of the things that we've been talking about. Uh, and it's, you know, that we're, we're kind of, uh, uh, there, there are a couple of thinkers uh, named Ingmar uh, Person and Julian Savalescu who, who uh, say, oh, part of, we have to morally enhance people and we have to biotechnologically enhance people in order to get their morality right. We're going to intervene on the brain structures that control morality, so to speak, in order to get people to, to take the crisis of, of the climate change seriously. Um, and, and so th that, that is actually out there. Um, and they, they say we may, we may be, as the kind of animals that we are right now, unfit for the future is, is kind of their way of thinking. 
Um, and so uh, they call for a kind of technological, biomedical uh, intervention on our moral life specifically, because maybe there's not time for this slow attentiveness that moral education requires. Uh, so, I mean, I'd like to hear you think, uh, think about that, which is part of the urgency mindset that's going on uh, in light of what it takes to cultivate a, a kind of moral sensibility in the sort of traditional human sort of way. I think it's a really dramatic way to uh, address the problem of moral incompetence. Um, and um, so, I don't know, I appreciate Savalesco for, the, for, for illuminating the depth of the challenge of moral competence. I think that the proposed pathway is um, not really serious in our, in our uh, current political and social possibilities. Um, I don't think you get a, yeah, you don't get a shortcut to, um, to, to um, building moral competence. But I would say he's onto this. Um, there might be a kind of technology that is needed to make us moral, more competent, but I doubt it's the kind of thing that can be injected in us or genetically inserted into a person. So there's a real, there's a real interesting imagination of the moral agent as this kind of single person who electively has these kinds of relations and actions with the world around them. And I suspect that the kind of technologies that we need are through um, better and different kinds of assemblies with human and non-human communities that realize us within us the possibilities that we already have but um, are, are just uh, at the moment suppressed because we're in um, uh, poor and corrupting communities. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good point. Um, Simone, are you going to say something? No, I guess not. Okay. Well, no, I, I, I wanted to, what, what, what Willis was talking about was the the well, I, I what I heard anyway it was the call for spiritual technology. Really, um, I mean, those are the technologies that, together with the technological fixes that we will have to work with, it's not a sort of either or question, right? It's not a binary of sort of spirit versus matter or something, but it's integrating the spiritual technologies with the techno fixes. Those will create the really sustainable technologies, um, and uh, I think there it's a question of. So, so going back to, to Jeff's question, there's, there's a, a worry here about um, time and temporality when it comes to causality. So when we do something, um, you know, on, we like to see direct results. And that's part of the kind of the modern scientific worldview, which is that we, we value um, direct, like uh, efficient causation, right? That I, am, I can see that I've done something and then I can trust that this was really caused by me. And, one is supposed to be suspicious of anything that's called indirect causation, sort of formal causation and so on, because you can't see directly that that's, um, that's the cause of the effect. And well, spiritual technologies are all about indirect causation. The whole thing about habit that we were talking about, you bless the food, well, that doesn't directly do anything for your perception of food, but it might 10 years down the line, and it will certainly do so for your children who grow up perceiving food that way, right? But this is long-term stuff. So... The, the anxiety is that when we start talking about spiritual technologies, it's long-term and they don't have the immediate results. And so what's the point? Let's just throw, it, throw the towel in, right? Um, and then we, we're, and then, so we do that and then we go straight and then we go only with the, the sort of direct causation technologies. And the problem there is that of course they don't have long-term effects. So we have to find a way of balancing two of them. All right, we have a, a question here that it, it's, uh, it's mostly directed at Simone, but anyone can chime in, of course. So 
is uh, that the, the author of the question uh, says, speaking from a Caribbean context, some have suggested that much of the ecological issues in the Caribbean uh, are essentially caused by Euro-American negligence. Since you spoke about decolonization uh, within ecology in the Anthropocene, uh, the question is this, to what extent is the Anthropocene merely Occidentocene? Uh, uh, in other words, it's a Western, uh, uh, a Western problem, so to speak, uh, that of course permeates well beyond the West. Uh, that is where uh, most of humanity's shaping of the world is done by the Western world with so-called developing nations facing the brunt of their shaping. Um, so what is, to what extent is it a problem caused by the West that's, the, that's being visited upon the rest of the world? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. Um, yeah, this is one of the, the criticisms that's been brought, uh, brought to the Anthropocene, which, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's that the, not only ha is it, it elevates the human, but it also implies that the question of humanity is sort of um, a given, right? So that we know what it, we, what it means to be human. And in fact, what we're talking about is the um, agency of, of one portion of humanity, mostly, right? Um, or one portion of humanity that identifies with certain ideals. So it's a really complicated question. And well, no, that, that's actually, that's a, that's a way out of the question. It's not complicated, it's actually quite easy. And it becomes complicated when the speaker using the term Anthropocene includes all of humanity when really they need to be addressing specific um, political questions and ideological questions that have to do with their political context. So there's a real danger here that um, science turns metaphysical before it's really kind of understood the um, political uh, realities of metaphysics, really, um, I suppose. And which is why religion is a really good way of mediating this, because religion is communities that are anchored in places that have relationships to land and to people and to animals and, and so on. Um, and so it's a way of um, keeping metaphysics and science anchored somewhere. They, they often can be um, unanchored. Um, so, yeah, no, but, but obviously I agree with the, um, the question. It is very much uh, a sort of quote-unquote Western problem. In, in, and it, if it's not examined as such, the concepts that we're talking about, the Anthropocene, can be incredibly um, like unproductive. Basically. It's not going to generate change in the way I think it was conceived. Ben, were you going to say something? Yeah, just to, to add to that, it, you know, we need to be careful also not to be othering all the time. It's a sort of point the finger. I think that's really a key message we forget that we don't, we shouldn't be like always pointing the finger. Take the speck, the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. And, and what we've seen with the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, is it's not everybody in the West who is, you know, doing this. Um, it's actually maybe we should just be calling it the wealthy people of scene or something. <laughs> but, uh, um, but at the same time, what's difficult with climate change is it, it, it will require, you know, it will touch everybody, it will require everybody. And that's where I mentioned the Montreal Protocol earlier, that was much easier. We had six companies making CFCs, you bring the six in the room, the main manufacturer saw there was a profit motive, there was something in it for them, they did it. 
And here with climate change, it will require, you know, I, I, I don't know if we can distribute a nasal spray of oxytocin, you know, a little bit of love hormone to everybody in the morning and that will make things easier or habits, like Simone says. That, you know, religion has been, this is not the first time we, we have crises. You know, religions have long history of tools of, of dealing with this. I think of, um, you know, science now is, is rediscovering the value of meditation. And you're like, you know, people have been saying this for quite a, quite a long time, but you know, this is great. This is great. Rediscover it now. And, and, and now with COVID is a good time to maybe rediscover adoration of the sacrament for, for Catholics, meditation, contemplation, all these, all these things are tools that I think maybe scientists would be, um, hesitant to embrace too much or, or poo-poo, but I think with the encyclicals and different traditions say, no, actually, they're part of the solution. We, they, they will, in fact, uh, work in the long run. Okay. Um, uh, so here's a, here's a question specifically about Christian ethicists. So, uh, so uh, I think, Willis, it might be interesting to, to have you speak to this, but for Christian ethicists, uh, would adopting a pluralist approach uh, to environmental issues be possible? And by pluralism, the, the, the questioner uh, means adopting a common cause with non-Christians and non-religious ethical frameworks. Uh, on the one side, there's a certain attractiveness to this, especially as emphasized by Francis in the last two encyclicals. And then on the other side, there's a certain pessimism about this, especially given uh, certain post-liberal claims uh, to Christian otherness. So it might be interesting to have you speak to some of that, Willis. Well, that's a really good question, um, which I'm happy to answer broadly in the affirmative since um, I have argued publicly for just that, um, a kind of um, a pluralist sense of what Christian ethics should understand itself to do in that um, insofar as we're um, engaging challenges to our tradition, ones that challenge our competence, then, then you, you, it's best to do that. It's most fertile to do that in dialogue. Um, with folks from other traditions, not expecting that you're going to create exactly common ground, but that you're looking for, um, you know, analogous moral competencies that are meaningful within those various traditions and communities, whatever practices those are, whatever concepts those may be that help folks interpret and respond to, say, climate crisis. So, yes. Um, and then I will just affirm the other side of that. Yes, there's a huge liability to pluralist and pragmatist approaches in that they can be captured by the initial framing of what the challenge is, what the problem is, right? So, you, know, you know, we just had us talk about whether Anthropocene is an illuminative or distortive concept, right? Yes, right there, there's one. Um, and, um, and also definitely um, captive in, in several ways to um, political, um, what? bad channeling or, or manipulation or corruption of good faith dialogue and conversation between communities of difference. Um, I, I guess, and so if I can just come down with a quick bottom line on that, um, I really, I, I feel deeply in thought and body that, that liability um, of my own pluralist and pragmatist commitments, and yet I don't really see the alternative. Um, I think in the end, uh, um, dialogue is the only place that someone like St. Francis understanding, sorry, Pope Francis understanding the, in, the encyclical as um, a part of pluralist dialogue of a really big challenge. It's really the only, it seemed to me the, the only consistent way, um, consistent mode to present that, that treatise. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes, that, that's, that sounds, uh, that sounds right. And, and it's, 
I mean, we have the tools we have, uh, and, and we're gonna we're gonna you know pragmatically try the tools out. And of course, on the fly, we can you know we can shift our tools. We can begin to learn from other other uh, other tools that other people are deploying. And so I, I think that's a really good point. And this brings to a question that someone has put in here, is, is specifically, uh, you know, well, what what are some other embodied practices which uh, might uh, cultivate capacities for new forms of ecological thinking. And it might be that we're going to get some of those from our own specific tradition, but uh, in dialogue, we might get others. So what, what, what do you think is out there that, that we ought to do? I mean, I think Ben points to some, just say grace, you know, uh, keep the Sabbath in some, uh, you know, some way. What else, what else is available to us, do you think? Mm. I think on the, the practical side, there's a lot of things. And, um, you know, without falling into the, the, the techno sort of happy, every, you know, every solution is technical. I think there are a lot of things we can do right now. I, I know we recently had to change cars after a teenage mishap. Um, but uh, so we bought an electric car. It's great. The, you know, you don't have to be an environmentalist to do this. On the other hand, not everybody's in a position to do that. Maybe. And, and so there are a lot of resources online for, for things where we, we are moving in the right direction. This is the, the lesson of air pollution is, um, you know, the air we, we breathe in most of the most of the developed world is much, much cleaner than it was before. And that's been great. And that hasn't led to the, the downfall of society. And I don't think anybody wants to go back to the way it was before. You know, um, the EPA was founded by a Republican president. And if you think the EPA should be disbanded, you should be given a one-way ticket to New Delhi in the winter and, and, and appreciate what that's done for us. So, so lots of things. And maybe also to chime into what Willis was saying earlier about pluralism, which I think is, is true. Um, but also the, you know, for, for Catholics at least, we believe in the unity of truth, and and the scientists often in, in evolution we, we kind of like you know con convergent evolution. So they're not it's not either or it, it's both and that it can be different paths leading in the same direction. So. Yeah, if I can just jump in on that, uh, um, a, a strong confidence and trust in the unity of truth, I think, should make one more um, inclined to um, uh, reconcil reconciliation to pluralism and pragmatism if you have a sufficiently long run view. So, uh, so here, here's a question that, that kind of goes in a slightly different direction, and it'd be interesting to hear you think on it. So. Uh, uh, you know, so it's, it's all, you know, we're, we've been talking about changing our ways, uh, changing our attunements, our attentiveness and things like that. Uh, and this person asks a question that says, well, do we really need to reinvent the wheel? And uh, it, the person points to the idea, the metaphor of the church's uh, doctrine uh, kind of unfolds dynamically uh, like a plant that's growing uh, and perhaps for us Christians, the goal is not so much to break our heads trying to seek new frameworks um, out there as we face ecological crises, but rather to go back to basics, uh, fraternity, the commandments, practices, uh, recognition of our sinfulness, uh, and bring them to bear uh, as, as, uh, as uh, uh, on the things that we face and see how they can be fleshed out and articulated in continuity with 
you know, specifically here, I'm thinking the person is thinking of the Catholic uh, uh, spiritual tradition. So do we, do we, can what, you know, can we just draw on something we already have hold of, in other words, and trust the church's teaching uh, that these things unfold over time in the development of, of doctrine, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think that um, one of the, the, um, one of the red herrings in this debate is trying to find the perfect worldview or ontology that's going to solve our spiritual problems. Um, so that it's a question of kind of finding a way of being that we just follow religiously and then suddenly we become the people that we want to be in terms of environmentalism. Um, and we're never going to find that perfect worldview because they're all, you know, human and flawed and whatever. Uh, we have to do the worldview that we're in and do it well. So if we're Christians and we're Catholic and we have a wealth of literature, we've talked about some of it already at our fingertips, we just have to start actually doing it, activating it, reading it, but experimenting with it as well. I mean, Willis said so nicely, like we have to be historians of this stuff, but we also have to be practitioners and we just have to do it well, wherever we are, whichever tradition we are. It's not converting to another denomination isn't gonna solve it. Right. Um, we just have to do the spiritual landscape where we are, do it well, um, understand it, really be attentive to it. And there, there's, there's going to be aspects of it that are going to be um, uh, disappointing. And those are the ones we have to try and transform ourselves. So I agree with the question. It's not a question of um, reinventing the wheel. And when we when we think that that's happening, when we see that happening, we have to be wary um, and ask if that if that is actually helping um, and helping our transformation, I mean, our perceptions to be transformed. Yeah, I, I disagree with Tolstoy on this point. Tolstoy says all unhappy families are unhappy in, in different ways and all happy families are the same. I think, no, happy families are all very different. The saints were all very different and there's, there's lots of different things we can do. And, you know, I like to bike, so I would probably bike to work irrespective of climate change, but it happens to be good for climate change too. So that's a good thing. You know, maybe you hate biking. Well, don't take up biking, <laughs> do something else. But uh, there's, you know, different practices that happen. And, but I do think, you know, think of the angels coming down at Christmas and uh, above the manger and they, they sing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people of goodwill. And I think of a pax omnibus bone voluntatis, you know, do, are we people of goodwill? Are we making an effort? God will, uh, well, I don't want to open up a can of worms, but I, I think he does say peace, of, peace to people of goodwill. Well, one, one final question. It's been such a conversation. I could, could go a, little, a lot longer, but I'm just going to end with one question. It's uh, asking you for some recommendations. So there's been a lot of thinking and writing about other cultures and communities and, uh, and how they're imagining things, including the Christian mystical literature. So can you guys uh, make some recommendations of one or two books or articles that you found helpful that you know, have good current literature uh, reviews out there that might be useful to, to, to the, all of our, our, our people who are listening in here? Um, is it right if I go first? Yeah, go for it. Oh, just uh, the, I was recently um, reading uh, James Perkinson's uh, Political Spirituality 
in an age of eco-apocalypse, which is really wonderful for thinking the Christian tradition as itself a kind of indigenous way of thinking and then um, drawing it into conversation with, with uh, what we've been talking about, the, um, the a-modern and the non-modern. Yeah, it's really brilliant. So that say it one more time, Simone, so we can get it. Uh, by, so the author is called James Perkinson and the book is called Political Spirituality in an Age of Eco-Apocalypse. I think I got that right. Okay. Political Spirituality in an Age of Eco-Apocalypse. Okay. Good. Uh, Willis or Ben? Um, well, uh, I would, um, two books come to mind. Um, one, Inside the Tradition, uh, Doug Burton Christie's um, Blue Sapphire of the Mind is a, is a lovely, um, it's a reading of the, the Desert Fathers uh, in sort of conversation with contemporary environmental thought. And so he draws out both um, ideas and, and also specific spiritual practices um, sort of reframed for contemporary, I don't know, stresses, I guess I'd say. And um, it might be especially profitable to read that with uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. She's a, she's a, um, a Potawatomi uh, botanist who thinks both with scientific traditions and um, um, indigenous traditions in um, a really generous way. Okay. Good. Mm -hmm. uh, I think also on the, on the practical level, maybe um, lots of groups online, like the, the Catholic Climate Covenant, for example, in the US, has a lot of valuable resources that kind of span between, you know, like a carbon lent, for example, what are small things you can do as a family to bigger things? What can you do organization wise and, and to further reading? So Catholic Climate Covenant and, and other similar things. So, uh, thank you, uh, Jeff, for moderating tonight's discussion. Uh, and thank you, Professor Jenkins, Defoy, and Katha for an exciting and important discussion. Uh, we have plenty of material to go on for perhaps a half semester course. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to also extend our gratitude to our co-presenters and co-sponsors, the International Academy of Bioethical Inquiry and the Nagy Center for Healthcare Ethics. And thank you also in the audience for joining tonight. If you'd like to support future program, you can do so in two ways. You can join our mailing list and share our event announcements with others. And even in an online world, word of mouth goes a long way. Uh, and two, you can financially support us by donating at lumenchristi.org slash donate. So I want to thank you all again for, for joining. Hopefully you can come to uh, our future programming. Thanks, okay. everybody. <laughs>